Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president, professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by my colleague and good friend, Dr. Tommy Keene, academic dean and professor of New Testament, who just got done last week teaching a class on hermeneutics. I know we're not supposed to date these episodes, so I'm, I'm locating this in time, mm. but he just came off of a week of discussing the science of interpretation. And during that week, I know, Tommy, that you discussed the topic of typology. Over and over and over again. Over again in a progressive way? In a progressive way, <laughs> almost like foreshadowing of yeah. each other, yeah. Like prophetic stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the thing. Typology, it's a topic that a lot of people cite. They bring it up. It's, uh, it's You and I both know that it's used often to rationalize bad exegesis yep. and to rationalize finding what you want in the text. You might even say eisegesis, as people say, mm-hmm. you know, reading into the text and using, using analogy and metaphor in that way. So let's, let's develop a, a healthy doctrine this afternoon. Old Testament, um, New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah. Healthy doctrine of typology. I was kind of reflecting on it from a number of different angles that that, that week because we had Ligon Duncan in the next room. Right. And I think that episode's going to go out before this one, so that's good. Um, talking about the nature of covenant theology. So there, there he's engaged in that systematic theological enterprise and doing the theological work of understanding the whole Bible uh, as you know, and the Bible as a whole, as a finished product versus what we're often engaged in in kind of New Testament or Old Testament disciplines, which is locating this part of the scripture in its, in its history, in its moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of what we do is, or at least of what I do, I don't want to speak for you, but is like seeing the significance of this moment in history. Maybe it's the kingship of David or the coming of Pentecost and Acts or these kind of moments in history and to see them as discrete, unique, redemptive, historically significant moments in time on their own right, while mm-hmm. also part of this broader storyline that these things go together that they relate it's not just a series of unfortunate events it's or fortunate events in this case but a um a cohesive narrative history yeah that's a great way to put it too because that reminds us that these things happened in history we don't have to ignore that or get rid of that to preserve the notion of typology and yet you're also acknowledging, and, and here's the thing that I think is important. We're acknowledging with not just the apostles. This isn't just like an apostle's trick. We're acknowledging with the late Old Testament prophets and even the earlier Old Testament prophets, because they saw mm-hmm. the world organized this way as well, that God has an MO and God, it, it's not because he's limited. It's not because he's finite, but that he works in a way that's intelligible and anticipatable. Yeah. Okay. To a certain extent. So if he's going to walk with his people or be present with his people as he is with Abram and then in the sanctuary, or actually I didn't even say it, as he is in the garden and with Abram and then in the sanctuary of the temple and in the land. You know, in other words, God, God dwells amongst his people and we should expect 
patterns and structures. That's the way right. I describe it. These patterns, that might be a tautology, patterns and structures, but I feel like patterns gets at maybe the narratival aspects of it and structures gets at the things like temple. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Patterns and structures that anticipate or adumbrate the realities of Christ. Yeah, and the legitimacy of that kind of interpretation, like Exodus, new ex exile is Exodus. Yeah. Uh, out of Egypt, I called my son. No. New Exodus in the new covenant. The that exegetical move has come under a good deal of scrutiny, both in kind of traditional, grammatical, historical, almost critical. Um, communities, but then also even among evangelicals. It's always a kind of reoccurring debate how legitimate is typology in terms of exegesis. Is it eisegesis or exegesis? And I think the way you're describing it there, I would describe, I say typology is completely legitimate exegetically, mm -hmm. but it's grounded in that kind of, as you put it, it's anchored in this view of history, this view of theology, of how God of theology proper, how God works, of anthropology, of us as image bearers, all of that kind of yeah. theological weight is required to legitimize typology, at least at the at least at the exegetical level. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of like a James Barr. James Barr put together a, as he's wont to do, just sort of leveled the theological playing field a couple decades ago by arguing that there's nothing that typology is essentially allegory mm -hmm. you know, what makes allegory allegory is that you read the events of history into us or the uh, the text into some system some system that's alien to the text and mm -hmm. he said you know typology reading the system is about christ in some way it might not seem allegorical but it's just reading it into a system that exists beyond and above uh, above beyond and above the text which would be true if those things that you mentioned god's providential care of all yep. space and time were not true yeah it's a good yeah you have to have a, a big doctrine of god revealing himself as sovereign mm -hmm. and providential to argue the thing that these events i mean we're making in other words we're making you're making this sophisticated distinction between the events and the discourse, yeah. which is yeah. right to do, right? And that God is active in the events. The events tell, the, the, the events uh, reveal who God is. And we have to be able to distinguish and yet also recognize that, I, I think as we're saying here, the typology is valid at the level of the events and it's valid at the level of the story. There's, there's an intertextuality, right? and yet you don't have to be radically, what we might call like radically canonical about it. That it's just in the text and has nothing, no bearing on reality itself. Yeah, essentially, like at a literary level, you could say typology is just good connectivity in terms of like intertexts mm -hmm. you know, that we reference. You know, you see this on like the social networks, right? Where you you meme something, something that happens in your life reminded you of an episode of Friends. Yeah, and so you you know take the animated GIF and this is that. I mean, that's typology at a kind of just popular level, um, the <laughs> memeing is typological. It, make, it reminds me of this statement Von, Re Von Rod made that typology is basic to all human thought. You know, it's not just some sort of isolated mm -hmm. exegetical thing. It's what happens when you hear a story and it reminds you of your story. And so you're like, hey, my story is like your story. So I'm going to tell my story now. 
you can think about typology kind of at that level, but we're saying something more. We're saying yeah. that the Exodus is God intended to be a reminder That's right. of what he's going to do or a pointer to a, a, a guidepost for what he's going to accomplish in the exile, what he's going to accomplish in um, bringing Jesus, the baby Jesus out of Egypt and what he's going to accomplish by bringing us out of sin and death. Yeah. These are all kind of symbolically embedded in the historical moment of Exodus 20. Yeah, there's a there's a real, without getting too abstract, there's a real philosophical undergirding to this. If you remember back to our last year, we interviewed Chris Watkin. I think it was last year, is it two mm -hmm. years ago? Yeah, last year. And he talked about how the ground of being in the biblical worldview, philosophy is personal and relational. And it's also revelatory yeah. and that we believe that these are not just random events taking place, but that these are, um, these are the, the created events that sprout out of the personal, relational, revelatory God. So we shouldn't be surprised that we learn about him by seeing events. Now, without hanging on to that too much, mm -hmm. of course, that's all mediated to us. That's, that's more of just an epistemological framework. But as we're then, or an ontological framework, as we're then now talking about how do they exist in the scripture? That's, that's all that we know of them. We don't have a videotape. We don't right. want to have a videotape. We don't want to go around scripture and see like whatever. I hear archaeologists sometimes say, I want to find out what really happened. You know, we're not, we're not, we don't, we're not interested in that right. per se. What we're interested here is how these events are articulated intertextually. And what we see right away is that prophets um, uh, felt completely free and authorized mm -hmm. to see events as indicative of patterns of redemption. And you could point to their their emblems. They were sim, you know, yeah. symbols of things, and they weren't arbitrary. It was there's not a thousand. As I tell our students, there's not like a thousand, a hundred thousand types out there. It's actually it's pretty it's pretty few. Yeah, when you look the, at scripture and the meaning of those events, because they're historically guided by God, because they're bigger than just the event themselves. But this is true, like ordinary history too. You don't really mm -hmm. understand the full ramifications of an event until that storyline reaches its, its zenith, its, its telos. Mm -hmm. But um, but especially with with these events that God is using to bring about the redemption of the world, we might say that we only understand them fully when we understand them eschatologically, when we understand them in light of how they how they point us to Christ. And it reminds me of something like Peter, or excuse me, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, these things, the Exodus again, ha the, these things happen as examples for us. Mm -hmm. and part of the meaning of that event is that us who live in the end of the ages have an exemplary pattern of yeah. the wilderness generation, what it means to be called out of Egypt, but not yet in promised land. It's all part of this image of the already not yet world in which we live. That's the meaning of yeah. That event, which is going to make James Barr, he won't be able to sleep at night. But for those of us that do believe in a God no. who providentially maintains the, the heavens and the earth, it's not only a comfort, but a reminder that this all coheres and coheres in, in Christ. Yeah. And it touches on the, your notion of inerrancy. Like where where is the authority in Scripture? Is it in that 
historical moment out of which the scripture is articulated, or is it merely in the text, regardless of author? And I think this discussion we're having, you know, kind of highlights, well, you know, there, there is a, there's an author who has an intentionality and a place Mm -hmm. in time and he has an audience and he's writing for that audience. And I, I don't imagine that Isaiah has the full scope of how, you know, uh, new creation imagery will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? But he's writing for his day and he's anticipating the Yom Adonai, the day of the Lord and these things will come to be. And it's somewhat vague and impressionistic in his day. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet it has meaning beyond just that immediate audience. It has meaning for what you could call a covenantal community. And I think the, I think the, the, the critical historian errs because he, he rejects the text and tries to reconstruct the history behind the text, whether that's form or historical criticism, whatever. The canonicalist errs because he rejects all of the history and, and, and the fact of an actual historical voice behind the text and, and kind of dis, you know, disconnects the text from the umbilical of the author. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what we're trying to hold to here is, you know, keeping a healthy, healthy view, author in time speaking for a community as a whole. So you can yeah. say something like new creation or streams flowing in the desert, um, like Isaiah does, and then Jesus comes and says, and let me show you what this is going to look like. Yeah, it's interesting. The New Testament doesn't often get self-consciously hermeneutical. Hermeneutics, obviously, mm-hmm. a discipline that arises in the last century as a um, as a discipline kind of with its own name and rule set and things like that. So, But when it does get hermeneutical and does kind of go meta as it were and think about Mm -hmm. the process of interpretation it uses language associated with that kind of tension on the one hand Mm -hmm. the apostles the prophets of the old covenant i think like first peter 1 10 you know the 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 prophets know they they speak from god they're bringing true oracles about god but they they know what they know through the mode of search and inquiry They, they they searched and inquired what God was saying through them, mm-hmm. as opposed to us in the new covenant who look at the same words. It's still word of God for us. It's still God's speech to his people. And yet we know that same speech now through the mode of an announcement that which that for which they searched and inquired has now been announced to us. And so we have this fuller appreciation of what was going on because the Christ has now come and has risen and is sat in, in the, at the right hand of the Father. All of those kinds of things now help us to better appropriate what was going on way back then. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think it's in John uh, chapter 12 where the gospel writer cites Isaiah. And he cites actually Isaiah. Does he cite from Isaiah 53? I'm trying to remember. The Suffering Servant Song. Mm-hmm. Um, he's talking about how um, no one has believed. And then he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw hmm. my glory. Hmm. And, so there's, and, and there he references back to Isaiah 6. And it's an interesting kind of move. I think most people read past that. Yeah. And you don't think about what that means. But what is it saying? It's saying that Isaiah was writing prophecies because Isaiah, the guy in history, 8th century, had this vision in 740, you know, the year the king Isaiah died. And he's kind of making a move there. He's, mm-hmm. he's referencing the intention of the historical person in understanding the textual prophecy. Mm-hmm. And there's a rootedness there 
It's very healthy. I think it's actually healthy in, in a sort of a common sense way, but I know common sense realism feels like Dr. Sutanto reminds me of common here. sense realism doesn't work. But it's kind of like, no, when people say something, I care what they mean by it. And yet I can also recognize that it could mean more than they mm -hmm. necessarily understand and intend. You know, Jesus does something similar and he's talking about how in Psalm 110, David, you know, says the Lord, Adonai said to my Lord, Adoni, sit in my right hand, I'll make your enemies your footstool. And he goes, well, David wouldn't have said this of Solomon right. because no father calls their son my Lord. So he must have been speaking of someone greater. You know, he's kind of doing this historical David had an intention and that informs the way we understand it and yet also recognizing that it speaks far beyond right. what historical David yeah. Right. That's another yeah. good spot where he kind of like works through the hermeneutical yeah, logic I love of it. it all. Yeah. It's like the sausage being made. Yeah, you get a little right. bit. Jeremiah does it a lot too. I love Jeremiah because Jeremiah will pause and talk about what he and Baruch are doing. Anyways, um, let's well, loop back I, around. I was wondering if, so, you know, we're kind of grounding this, these typological moves, these correspondences between historical event and kind of a fuller way in provenance and theology and reformed soteriology like would you I, I don't know i feel comfortable saying this what i'd be interested to hear your thoughts if it does seem like a not uniquely reformed but it typology is most at home yeah in kind of a reformed theological system and i think typology is an idea it has been pointed out before early on when you see it emerging it is kind of like it feels like allegory and it's yeah. really not until it's i think plugged in or activated by a redemptive historical approach yeah. that that can provide a grand narrative that you do start to really see it in all of its splendor right <laughs> right and that's the i get asked a lot in class you know what what grounds this what keeps this from being just fanciful exegesis mm -hmm. you know anything you want it to mean as long as it points to jesus i was going to throw that back at you oh. so what is it what how do, how do you falsify what's the what are the falsifiable rules well I, I mean typology? one i think there's a couple of good guidelines and constraints. I mean, the testimony of two witnesses, you know, don't, don't base it on one just sort of imaginative take on a text, that That's kind great. of stuff. But, yeah. but it's that redemptive historical uh, framework that I think really actually helps us stay, we, gives us a big playground in which to play without opening up the, the floodgates of just yeah. allegory, is that, that history and particularly redemptive history grounds the eschatolog the uh, the typological hermeneutical enterprise it it has to fit within the narrative and it has to fit within the narrative in a way that's organic and comprehensible both in the mode of search and inquiry and in the mode of announcement if you sever the text from its original audience yeah. if you do it in a way that the original audience could not know you know the scarlet thread that has to be the blood of christ you know, if you do it in that way, you've severed the text from the original audience because they can't see that far into the yeah. future. They can't see what, they don't know what you know. Yeah. But if you do the scarlet thread and you say, look, actually, we just had this event, this Passover event, and we put blood over the mantle and we did all this kind of stuff. And this, mm -hmm. this is what you do when you make covenants because we know, suddenly you've grounded the text in something that is historically knowable by yeah. Israel and Rahab, she says, 
we've heard stories about you, right? Yeah. So, so you've, you've grounded the text in a narrative that they know and then can show how that narrative finds, yeah. projects a future and finds fulfillment. That's really Christ. good. Yeah, it's got to be rooted in the original meaning. Right. And that does that interest of people to cut the original meaning from technological fulfillment, I think, fails. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a way to do it. But it's, it's a way that also is kind of intuitive, and we do it with each other all the time. I can... I can understand humans speaking beyond, you know, I, yeah. anyways, I, I think about that a lot in terms of just linguistics. Like this is not some, it, sometimes I feel like academics talk about something like it's impossible to understand. Right. Like, no, this is kind of how we communicate as people. Yeah. Too. We imply a future no. when we talk to each other. And another good example, another good way, you said the more than one witness, and I think that's a great point. Types, you should feel less com- confident maybe in your typological interpretation if you're the only one saying it. But if Hosea says it and, and Matthew says it and, and, and Paul says it, then you, know, you can start to track. Yeah. Also, as you get a better understanding that, you know, temple, you know, to use the type that is that would sort of activate temple imagery. It's not just temple. It's also sacrifices. Mm-hmm. It's That's holy right. of holies. It's sanctuary, uh, maybe tabernacle or priesthood. Like all of that is kind of activating the same type. Yeah, it's part right? of a symbolic world. Yeah, that has imaginarium or something. Yeah, yeah. right. I th- and I think that's one thing for students. If you're the only one who sees it and it doesn't show up anywhere else, and that's kind of problematic. And and there's, I'll, I'll give two caveats. I, I I hear people give certain preachers a hard time. Um, you know, Spurgeon's one for sometimes mm-hmm. getting a little allegorical. And I get it. I've beat up Spurgeon for that. I know as I say that, you know, it's Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of, of all time. Yeah. And, and uh, But I also think sometimes you have to remember there's a homiletical move that you can do that's not a hermeneutical move. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to, I mean, homiletics is a different category. That's where you're helping articulate something in a way that people remember and hear. Mm-hmm. And you can play around. However, if you're doing that, I would make sure that my audience kind of knows that, you know, in ways, be, be su- subtle if possible, but in ways, let them know, like, I'm kind of playing. Or, or, this is not a good example of that, but I remember someone preaching a sermon on Ecclesiastes and saying, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, but oh. under the sun, S O N, all things are made new. You know, and you're like, well, okay. That's not what Ecclesiastes is about. Right. That's not what, <laughs> but but I hear what you're doing. That's not a good example. But I, you got to remember homiletics is a different thing and communicating clearly yeah. is important. And we maybe need to be a little bit more merciful to some folks. I think that's right. Uh, and there is a difference between an illustration and a type. So mm. I could use something illustratively, but if I'm, if I'm not actually saying anything about redemptive history or the structure of God's providential care of the creation, you know, things like that. It's just an illustration and you leave it at that. I think there's actually a couple of new Testament spots where it looks like it's, it, the question is, is this an allegorical interpretation? Actually, most of those are just illustrations. Yeah. Can be. Well said. Well said. Well, great conversation. There's so much more. We maybe we should do a part two and three and four and five down the road because there's so much to say about this. But this is a great introduction, I think. Thanks for um, helping kind of articulate those distinctions within typology and, and the importance of it for hermeneutics. So thanks, Tom McKean, for chatting. This is fun.
you'd like to know more about RTS Washington, come check us out at our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. You can start a conversation on how to take classes here and have deeper conversations like the one you just heard. And you can also, if you're interested, post questions to this podcast. Go to the show notes uh, of the podcast and you'll see a link there where you can post questions and we will address them in future episodes. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary, part of a 50-plus year endeavor. What? What did I say? <laughs> oh, no, you got it right. <laughs> I, 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 you the one it. time. You, bro, you've messed me up. <laughs> the one time you he got it right, and you messed him up. No, you didn't say it. <laughs> no, that's true. Well, yeah, watch it, yeah, because RTS is not part of the 50. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> Got up this morning, I actually thought, I don't know, I was like, I don't know if I remember it because I haven't said it in a month. But I think I, let's, let's try it again. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reform Theological.